I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. You know, I'm not what you would call athletic, but even I can be seduced by new gear, the glinting blades of freshly sharpened skates, a new bike that has me fantasizing about whizzing past the competition on the Giro d'Italia, or at least passing a few whippersnappers on my commute through the city. But now the competition in sports gear is heating up, with everything from super shoes for running to smart blades for ice skating. Beyond the hype, how much difference can these innovations make to you and me? This time, sports tech. Running is not as simple as it's made out to be beyond just trying to beat who the fastest competitors are around you there's an added element of who's got the best technology on their feet and that's been a thing for the past you know 10 or so years now and it's actually pushing forward the limits of you know how fast human beings have gone my name is Chris Chavez. I am the founder of Sidious Mag. I host the Sidious Mag podcast, a show where I talk to some of the fastest track and field athletes and marathoners around the world. Right now, there's a race going on where the leading athletic wear brands in the world try to create the best super shoes. In October 2023, Kenyan runner Kelvin Kiptum smashed the men's marathon world record in Chicago while wearing a pair. Amazing finish. Incredible. And Chris was there to see the 23-year-old marathoner shave 34 seconds off the previous men's record. It was mind-boggling just to see the mile splits that he was clicking off. It was just bending your mind in terms of just like what you thought was humanly possible. And you were like, there's got to be something wrong here. One of these mile markers has to be placed in the wrong spot. But no, he was actually running that fast. And to many people, that's considered a sprint for 26.2 miles. And it was remarkable. Two hours and 30 seconds, ladies and gentlemen. And it's not just the men breaking records. Two weeks before that, Ethiopia's Tagista Sefa shattered the women's marathon record in Berlin by more than two minutes. Takes the world record to Ethiopia, snatches it from the grasp of Bridget Kozgaard. So how fast are these athletes actually moving? For the men's world record, we're on the cusp of a potential sub-two-hour marathon in a actual race. I like to break it down to some of my friends to just try and comprehend how fast that is. It's sort of go out to your local track, run 69 seconds for one whole lap or 400 meters, and then just do that nonstop, you know, 110 times or whatever comes out to the equivalent of 26.2 miles. And, you know, it's exhausting to even think about. And on the women's side, like it's one of the 
craziest performances in athletics ever, uh, I think, to cut down on a record by so much. And seemingly both of these records have come from athletes that did not have that traditional track background into a half marathon and a big marathon resume. You know, it's come from a lot of hard training and then at the same time advances in technology. Yeah, so both of these races were said to reignite the debate about the role of high-tech shoes in elite athletic performance. What were Kelvin and Tagist wearing on their feet as they crossed the finish line in their respective races? Both are sponsored by by different brands, arguably like the biggest competitors. So Kelvin Kiptum is a Nike athlete and he was wearing the Nike Alpha Fly 3, a prototype, I guess, which hadn't hit the market just yet, but I think is now available to the masses. And from what I heard, sold out within seconds in both North America, Europe, and Asia. And, you know, Tigas Asafa is a Adidas-sponsored athlete and she was wearing the Adidas Adios Evo Pro ones. You know, so many of these shoes have some funky names, but for her (laughs) shoe, it made headlines for the fact that it is $500, probably the priciest shoe out there. And the fact that you can only wear it once for these major races. And so thinking of how much that investment is to just pursue a fast time, it does have you know, some people out there who, you know, are trying to hit a Boston Marathon qualifier or break three hours for the first time or just exploring, you know, their own sort of human potential in the marathon. It's a costly investment, but Adidas has equipped their athletes with that shoe and we're seeing records falling left and right, you know, as a result. Why can that shoe only be worn once? It's something to do with the foam. And that was the big shift that happened in shoe technology. We didn't even have to go that far back to the early 2000s when Christopher McDougall's Born to Run book comes out and it tells the story of these indigenous people in Mexico who run barefoot. And so that we moved into this, you know, minimalistic approach to running, very little to no cushioning and just kind of this is how we were made to run. But then around 2016, you know, less than two decades later, you know, Nike starts unrolling some prototypes of these super shoes and we saw Elliot Kipchoge win his first Olympic gold medal wearing, you know, one of these prototypes. And the U.S. Olympic trials had some performances that were fast and credited to those shoes as well. And from there, it led to, ironically, an arms race on people's feet where Nike was out ahead in being the first to shift to maximizing on cushioning. And, you know, there's, I'm sure, patents that all of these brands have put on the foam that goes into these shoes. And so it's not necessarily making you faster. And I think that's what one of the common misconceptions about super shoes. It's that all of the cushioning and the foam helps with your running economy so that by the time you are running really fast for 20 miles, your legs are not as taxed and you're not hurting as much when you hit that wall that everyone talks about. When you get into the later stages of the marathon, you're still feeling a little bit fresh. And at the same time, when you finish a race or you finish a really hard workout in these shoes, your body is just not as tired or the recovery process is a little bit shorter as a result. So you have people training in these shoes, you have tons of people racing in these shoes. It's another tool in people's skill set for running. Yeah. I have to say, Chris, I've been looking forward to using the term super shoes on the air. So how intense is the war of the super shoes? Yeah. So it got pretty intense because Nike was out ahead of everyone. And what this led to was 
the need for regulations to be put in place where sort of like how high can we make these shoes in terms of just how much foam can people stack into these shoes that are, are propelling people forward? Like you're basically bouncing in these shoes for the distance of a marathon and every other brand now needed to find their own response to it. But in that time period where we weren't, you know, in a state of equilibrium just yet, World Athletics, the governing body of track and field and road racing, came out with these regulations that said, you know, there's a maximum 40 millimeter stack height, you know, how high you can make these shoes. And these are the rules that everyone has to play within. And so now that kind of allowed for Adidas and Brooks and New Balance to work within these limitations. Like, okay, if we're going to pack this super foam into these shoes, we'll make them this high and this light. And so, you know, for a while, it was intense where a lot of these major marathons and big races were being won by Nike athletes because they had the super shoes on their feet and these other brands hadn't quite developed theirs. But within the last, you know, two, three years, we did start to see Adidas, you know, become a major player in it, New Balance. And so, you know, it started to feel a bit more leveled. And then even within the last year, it feels like we're back to a point where the biggest companies, Nike and Adidas, have surged ahead once again with the latest iteration of their shoes. So this is, I mean, the maximum is 45 millimeters, I think you said, which is 40. Pretty, yeah. 40 millimeters. So that's pretty high for the sole of a shoe. For people who've never seen them, can you describe what they actually look like? It does look like you're wearing platform shoes sometimes. <laughs> and, and you know, I like to say that, you know, you do add kind of an extra inch or two when you're, when you're wearing them in terms. So, you know, a 5'10 guy like me can start to say he's, he's closer to six foot. But, you know, it does feel like you're, you're running forward sometimes. And like, it gives you a little bit more of that rocking motion while you're running. And, you know, there is some bounce to it. When you put on a fresh pair of those, you do get that sensation of like, whoa, I could see why people are running this fast in, in them. And so it is something that you can feel when you, when you slip them on and you then do start to feel a difference when you revert back to just a normal pair of trainers. And I think one other caveat to things is that now, because there is this access to a variety of different super shoes and models, people are training in them as well. And so we're seeing the elite athletes using them just on their everyday runs or on their track sessions, and then ultimately also during the big races. And so it's crossed over and that technology has also been tweaked a bit to spikes on the track. And so it led to just sort of like this big technological advance in the last five years of athletics. Mm. When you watch somebody running in one of these shoes, can you, can you actually see a difference in their gait? I think so. The people at the front of the races winning them always just look like they have perfect form, but it does sort of change you know, the way that people are running. And I think that it took a bit for some athletes to adapt. You do have a couple elite athletes who have been able to transcend both sort of like the pre and post super shoe era. And right now you've got so many college kids who have grown up with the technology as well. And so, you know, they're just kind of born into it and used to it and, and have been developing along with it. But for a while, it was a time of the haves and the have nots. And now it is a bit more accessible for more people to have them. But at the same time, for many of these shoes, they started at $250, $200 yeah. price range. And, you know, that's a lot to ask sometimes. Yeah. So Adidas claims the pair that Tagist wore are, quote, enhanced with unique technology that challenges the boundaries of racing. 
So that's Adidas. But how much of a difference do super shoes actually make in a performance? I mean, she's obviously an extraordinary athlete independent of the shoes she's wearing. Right. That's the hardest part to try and put what the exact number is. When Nike came out with their first pair of super shoes, they were called the 4% because they were made to improve your running economy by 4%. Again, that's not making you 4% faster because if you do the math, that is kind of taking big chunks of time off. So I think it's sort of stayed within that range where it's like 4 to 5% increase in, in running economy. But just kind of over the course of the last five or six years, you just wonder how much we've gotten used to it and how much better people have gotten. I think the pandemic played a role as well where instead of constantly racing where some of these elite athletes were hitting the track for a couple months and racing a ton on there or training for two marathons in a year or three, the pandemic allowed for a lot of these elite athletes to just focus on their training and build this really strong base and foundation for what eventually we saw some big performances in 2021 and 2022 as a result of that. So there's kind of like a a lot of competing different factors. But at the end of the day too, while it's very easy for the shoes and the price and, and the fast times to get the headlines, I do think that, you know, there is a degree that we should be giving these athletes credit to their name and their their hard work and, and their training because that plays a big role too, you know, whether it's being done in the mountains of Ethiopia or, you know, along the side of the road in Flagstaff, Arizona, like we're seeing all these athletes put in that sweat and eventually that they invest to try and lead to these fast performances at these major marathons. a pair of smart youngsters. Hi, kids. Hi, kiddo. Say, why do you kids wear kids? So I can run faster and jump farther. So I can win more often. Right. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about the role of technology in pushing the limits of athletic performance. Right now, my guest is Chris Chavez, the founder of Sidious Mag, a publication all about track and field news. Nike's AlphaFly 3, that's the shoe Kenyan runner Kelvin Kipton was wearing when he completed the Chicago Marathon in 2 hours and 35 seconds, that's no longer just for elite athletes. It's now broadly available at about $400 a pair, which is obviously a lot of money. Considering the cost, does the average recreational runner really need shoes like this? So I fall into that category of like the average recreational runner and, you know, I'm running a marathon, you know, this weekend or by the time this airs, I would have just already run a marathon. So hopefully I'll run fast, but I will be wearing a pair of super shoes and I've seen my own running kind of take a big step forward as a result of wearing super shoes in races. And, you know, I like to think, you know, that a lot of the training also helped along the way, (laughs) but, you know, it is also very tough to get to the starting line of these races and you look around and you see those bright pink or green or white colorways that are the latest iteration of Nike or Adidas or New Balance's super shoes. And you look around and everyone in your corral also has them. So, you know, it is a major market. And I think Again, as a result of the pandemic, so many more people discovered running and have gotten into it that now that they're in it, they want to explore how fast they can go. They want to challenge themselves. And if this is what the top end of the sport is doing, the back of the pack is also using the same thing. But 
for adjusted goals. So whereas I might be planning to try and break three hours for the marathon, I want every little bit of help I can get along the way. So if it is one of these pair of super shoes that will help me get just a little bit closer, coupled with the training, the fueling and everything, hopefully it makes a difference. And so I'm not alone in that. By the way, I'm not sure that hitting under three hour marathon qualifies you as an average recreational athlete, but setting that aside for a second, part of it is, you know, this is Adidas and Nike, right? And it is partly about marketing. It's like it's there's super shoes, but there's the color. There's like how much of it actually is about, you know, not the market for elite athletes or even marathon athletes, but about the marketing of performance just sort of more broadly. I definitely agree that that plays a big role in it. And the number of shoes that get sold because of the high performance side of things, Nike would not have invested millions of dollars into this sub two hour marathon attempt by Elliot Kipchoge. It was 2016 or 2017, I believe. But they did everything that they could to try and get the first person under two hours. Because if you're the company that is able to do that, in that first pair of shoes, you've got that for life. And, you know, that is a very easy thing to explain to the masses. And that the masses are the people who are buying the shoes. And when you go to the gym or a coffee shop and you tell people you're a runner or someone picks up on that fact, they'll ask you either your mile time or what you've run for a marathon. So those are the two sort of polar sides of things. And super shoe technology has, you know, really taken off on both sides of that coin. So, you know, the fastest mile on the track by a woman was run last year by Faith Kipiegon in a pair of Nike super spikes. And the fastest marathon in history was run by, you know, both a man and a woman last year in a, you know, record eligible race by both people in super shoes. So we're seeing this thing, you know, on both sides and both the track and the roads. And, you know, the masses are paying attention because you know, they want to feel that moment as well. So yeah, there's millions of dollars that are both going into it in terms of just trying to stay up on the latest technology, trying to market it to as many people as possible. And at the same time, you know, they're getting it back in return with with millions of people buying these shoes. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a bit more about the issue of longevity? I mean, as we talked about the $500 pair that Tagista Sefa wore for the Boston Marathon, essentially we're done after the race. So how long are super shoes typically designed to last or is there a typical? It depends. The shortest life I've heard of is these Adidas shoes where it's a one-time use. And, you know, that's really hard to swallow in terms of just like, oh, one-time use, 25 miles. But then you've got the other pairs of shoes, whether it is the Nike, the New Balance, or, you know, some of these other brands, Brooks, who have come out with their shoes. I guess part of their sell is that our super shoes might last a bit longer. So that range typically is 200 to 300 miles. 250 seems to be the sweet spot. So you start to think of it as like, I'm paying a dollar per mile basically on these pairs of shoes. And once they're done, I guess like you just don't race in them. Maybe you could recycle them a bit for workouts or a couple easy runs. But yeah, it's an investment for sure on the part of both the athlete and also just you know how much you want to get out of it performance-wise. Yeah. Do you foresee any regulations around sustainability so that companies 
aren't designing shoes for one-time use? That's that's a big question too. You know, sometimes these brands will send me shoes to try and test out and they'll air one commercial on sustainability and, you know, different efforts that they're making to, you know, try and cut down on their carbon footprint. But then I get, you know, the pair of super shoes that'll be either one-time use or not all that, you know, sustainable. And it also comes in this extravagant packaging. So yeah, I, I definitely think that there could be better efforts. Yeah. And just finally, what about runners who aren't able to afford the latest innovations in sports engineering? Is there a chance they'll be left in the dust? I hope not. You know, I hope at the end of the day that the hard work prevails. And I think one of the funniest moments during one of these marathons that I've run, I'm wearing a pair of super shoes that are probably like 200 bucks. And I'm getting passed by a guy who's barefoot. Like that's right. the beauty of sport is that even the people who don't have it sometimes can still find a way to prevail and get their own wins. So running is ultimately what you make of it. For me personally, you know, there are moments where like if I'm going into a race and I've got, you know, my choice of two or three different pairs of super shoes, maybe I go with the ones that aren't, you know, the best ones because I want to kind of see for myself like, hey, if I run this fast without the best pair of shoes, then there's the potential to go even faster. So running is beautiful in that way where you get to make of it what you want. And so hopefully there isn't that big discrepancy. I think that the common saying is all you need to get involved in running is a pair of shoes and shorts or a jacket or whatever it is and get out the door. But you know, if you want to explore how fast you want to go, at the end of the day, the biggest thing is training. The bonus is if you can get your hands on a pair of these super shoes, that helps too. Chris, thanks so much for your insights on this. I appreciate it. Chris Chavez is the founder of Sidious Mag and host of the Sidious Mag podcast. Since that interview, Chris has met his goal of running a marathon under three hours at the Houston Marathon. Just your average recreational runner. Games can be a lot of fun, can't they? We all like to play games and to win. We all like to watch games. There's good sportsmanship. You know what that means? Let's remember how to be a good sport. Play fair, play your best for the team, and take the results well. You are listening to Spark with Nora Young from CBC. Now, $500 single-use marathon shoes or even $400 multi-use sneakers might not be the most cost-effective option for everyday runners. But the engineering behind the latest athletic footwear from running shoes to skates is impressive, as are the athletes slashing records and challenging the body's limits in figure skating. That's simply ridiculously good. <laughs> in December, 19-year-old American figure skater Ilya Malinin made history at the ISU Grand Prix final. You know, a joke about him being the self-proclaimed title quad god, but he does own it because... The He's the first athlete to land a quadruple axle in the short program. That's four and a half revolutions in the air in less than one second. It's a feat of agility that's dubbed him the quad god, but he's not the only figure skater performing technical elements that were unimaginable only a few decades ago. Back in the early 2000s, there were one or two skaters in the world who could do a quadruple jump. And now, 20 years later, male skaters, female skaters, do multiple quadruple jumps in their programs, multiple types of quadruple jumps. 
It's really crazy. It's amazing what they're doing. This is Deborah King. She studies the physics of figure skating and is a professor of exercise science and athletic training at Ithaca College. At a level of difficulty, doing a quadruple jump in figure skating has been compared to like hitting a fastball in baseball. The skaters are jumping in the air and they're landing on a really thin blade on hard ice on top of concrete. They're not landing on a foam mat. It's really incredible to think about skating on ice and just being able to elegantly jump in the air, rotate, land, sequence the elements together so it's all a flowing program. Deborah says this emphasis on jumping makes figure skating look very different now than when the sport was first introduced in the 1908 Olympic Games. It was really a figure sport. So jumping wasn't part of the sport. It was called figure skating because skaters traced patterns and figures on the ice. So it was much more gliding and spinning and tracing like circles and serpentine patterns and doing so intricately and gracefully and right exactly. That's called the Wagner Paul lift. Oh, is it? Original lift? Yeah. So it's really gone from a very controlled sport of making patterns of figures on the ice and being able to control your footwork to now still having some footwork but being much more athletic. And as both the style and caliber of the sport has evolved, so is the technology of the boot and blade. One thing that you might not know is that skaters buy their boots and blades separately. So unlike when you go to the an ice rink and rent a boot and you're just given a skate and there's a blade on it, skaters need to think about the blade that will work best for them and the boot that will work best for them. So if we think from a jumping perspective, when a skater's coming down from a triple or quadruple jump, there's going to be a tremendous amount of torque acting on their foot and the ankle up through the leg, the knee and the hip. And that motion, there's not a lot of muscular support around the joint. So you'll see that figure skating boots have, are designed to provide a tremendous amount of support to stabilize and support the ankle so it doesn't collapse over. If you were to look back at the origins of figure skating, people had boots and then they had blades that they strapped onto their boot. So they just had the ankle support of what their regular boot was. And if you look back at pictures, it's generally just a leather boot, which went up probably to about mid-calf and was very floppy. In addition to the boot design, the blade that skaters buy, obviously the blade's critically important because it's going to be your interface with the ice and so you can control the edging and do all the spins and the footwork, spirals, the jumps. But some of the newer blades, if you've watched skating maybe over the past 10 years, they look ever so slightly different. So some of the blades are starting to use composite materials. Blades used to be all metal, and the composite materials have let the blade be a little lighter. And some of the designs of the blades can provide, hopefully, some absorption of force at the landing. So you don't get quite the shockwave of force when you land from the jump. Still, the latest blades can only absorb so much of a figure skater's impact upon landing. And with bigger jumps and stiffer boots comes an increased risk of injury. What has happened as that has occurred to the boot is the motion where you point your toes and you pull your toes up towards your shin. That's called plantar flexion dorsiflexion. And as the boot's gotten stiffer to provide that torque so your ankle doesn't roll inwards or outwards... We've also lost a little bit of plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. If you don't have a lot of plantar flexion and dorsiflexion motion, it's also hard to absorb the landing force through the muscles. So we do see that as the boots have been made stiffer so that skaters can do these really phenomenal skills, we're also concerned about with the 
um, design of the boots that the skaters are not able to use their muscles to absorb the landing forces as well. And that means they're experiencing high forces when they land, which could contribute to the overuse injuries we see in figure skating. And that's where Deborah's latest research comes in. She teamed up with colleagues at Brigham Young University. They're developing sensors that measure the force skaters exert on the ice during takeoff and landing of different jumps. She calls them smart blades or smart sense, since the sensor is attached to the skate in the spot where the blade is bolted to the boot. And so with a weight that's probably not much heavier than a couple of Type D batteries, we can have the battery power and the um, data collection components that will store the data that comes from these sensors. And that information gets stored on a computer card, which we can then read back and then have a measurement of the forces acting. So our goal is to hopefully be able to look at the forces acting on the the skater and take off and landing without having any of the instrumentation interfere with the skater. And the reason we're interested in looking at these forces is because um, skaters have a pretty high rate of overuse injuries in their primarily lower extremities, so their feet, their lower legs, their knees, hip, and even lower back. And the thought is that the loading on the lower body is contributing to um, overuse injuries, which are things like stress fractures and tendonitis. But to date, there really hasn't been a method to uh, quantify what the loads are on skaters as they go through their practices or um, their routines, their competition. So we haven't yet been able to you know, run correlations to see are there specific jumps which have higher loads than other jumps? How does doing a you know, double toe loop compared to a quintuple toe loop? So if an athlete was injured and they're coming back from rehab, are there certain types of jumps that would be better to start with as they're re-entering practice and training that would have you know, less of load on the body that they would do safely as they're um, still in rehab? So try to find the relationships between the different types of skills, the loading, and injuries. In her more than two decades researching the sport, Deborah developed a way of predicting how skaters' performance will likely evolve. I went back and I looked at the history of jump development. And by that, I mean, like, when did we start seeing single axles? When did we see a double axle? When did we see a double sockle? Sort of plotted them on a graph. And it turned out that about every 20 or so years, it seemed that an extra revolution was added to a jump. So I was fairly confident that we would see the quad jumps being done. The question then would be, would we see a quad axle and then would we see a quintuple toe loop? And now that I've been working with figure skating for, I don't know, about 20 to 25 years, I am fairly confident that we would be able to see skaters over the next decade or two do a quint toe loop or quint cell call, but I do think there will be a limit of how many rotations a skater can do. Particularly, I would hesitate to say that we'll see a quintuple axle, for example. Deborah King is a professor of exercise science and athletic training at Ithaca College. Barbara Ann Scott became Canada's first Olympic ice queen today at St. Moritz when she won the women's figure skating crown. Time magazine, issue February 2nd, 1948. A cover story on Barbara Ann, a week before her triumph at St. Moritz. 
On May the 15th, 1948, the Canadian, North American, European, World, and Olympic champion went on to receive the freedom of Ottawa. Not to be outdone by Ottawa's tumultuous welcome, Bay Street in Toronto was jammed with 60,000 well-wishers for her visit to Ontario's capital. Barbara Ann, for uh, CBC News Roundup, uh, what about Hollywood? <laughs> well, when I finished competing, I would very much like to go to university. I see. I'd like to go to Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young. Today, we've been talking about how advancements in technology have helped evolve sport. Engineering has always played an important role in the sports industry, helping design and improve equipment to reduce injury risk and help athletes perform better. The engineering field also sets regulations. But the role of engineering has evolved over time from the traditional mechanical approach to something a lot more digital. Sensors, virtual reality training, big data, machine learning, all these things which is I guess what we might call smart sports equipment rather than the sports equipment in the more traditional sense. This is Thomas Allen, a senior lecturer in sports engineering at Manchester Metropolitan University. His research centres on sports equipment and understanding the effect of technology on sport. So we might be looking at improving the performance of an athlete, so helping them to improve the, the running shoe design which which they're using so they can and run faster or maybe better football boots to improve the, the grip and, and enhance their performance. But we might also be looking at injury reduction as well. Mm. So improving helmet design to reduce issues such as concussion or, or body armor, which is lightweight and flexible and breathable and that people want to wear, but will also offer them protection as well because it's relatively easy to make body armor which is big and bulky and offers lots of protection, but then people might not might not choose to, to wear it, particularly when doing recreational sports, you know, mountain biking, skiing and snowboarding, sports like this. Sure. And I imagine all kinds of new technical fabrics uh, are changing the way that that, uh, what's possible in that regard. Yeah, exactly what's possible. And also just from the enjoyment perspective as well. So it might just be about improving someone's kind of well-being and feeling when, when they're on the mountain so they feel warmer and you know less of an issue with, with wind and rain and then they're more likely to go out and, and exercise as well. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about a specific sport? You've been recognized as a global expert in tennis racket technology so can you walk me through some of the recent breakthroughs in, in racket design and, and how they're changing the game? So racket design has, has changed massively. So the early rackets around 150 years ago were made of wood. It was more like a, a craftsman, I guess, making making the rackets on an individual basis. They originally had uh, lopsided heads, and the heads were quite were quite small. And then the heads um, straightened out, but they were still still small until around the 1970s. It was main, mainly wood, and then engineers really started experimenting with with different materials. So. 
things like aluminium and fiber-reinforced composites, which were coming across from the aerospace industry. The racket heads became much, much larger, easier to, to hit the ball. And then that transitioned into the, into the modern racket shape, where you have a much shorter handle, much larger head, lightweight racket, so you can swing it easily, and very stiff as well, so you have less kind of vibrations from, from impacting the ball. And then the latest rackets will be you know, really fine-tuned for the player. We're looking at new materials, so meta-materials and auxetic materials and really sort of advanced materials within the racket, and also in embedding sensors as well. So now it's fairly common to have a sensor in the handle of the racket that will give you information on your swing, where you're hitting the ball, how hard you're hitting the ball. So going back to what I was talking about before, this sort of digitization of sport and giving the user some, some information back about how they're performing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something called oxetic materials. What is that? So an oxetic material is a material which expands when you pull it. That means it has a negative Poisson's ratio. So a usual material, when we pull it, imagine an elastic band, it, it gets thinner, whereas an oxetic material will, ex- will expand outwards, and that gives it some unusual and enhanced properties as well. And is there ever a sort of a question of trade-offs? For example, if you're getting the head of the racket larger, are you necessarily improving it on all measures or is it you know you maybe you're sacrificing something else because you want this larger surface area it, it, exactly so so uh, there's also the trade-off that the larger the head the easier it is to hit the ball off center so if you're hitting the ball off center that's then twisting um, the racket as well and actually elite players will be very consistent in where they hit the ball so they'll hit the ball in exactly the same place they don't necessarily need this this large racket head but when you're a beginner you know you could be hitting all over the racket as you improve you don't need such a large racket head can you give me any other examples of technological advancements in sport that are elevating athletic performance? So a couple of examples. We saw the swimsuits. That was a few, a few years ago now, but so this enhancement in, in swimsuits that enabled athletes to perform better. Lots of records um, were broken. And then the governing body made, made some changes to the regulations and, and we don't really see them anymore. More recently, we're seeing um, running shoes and some people would refer to these as, as super shoes. We have very lightweight, high-performance shoes, which are allowing athletes to, to run faster, both on the long distance and, and the short distance races, but the long distance and the marathon is where you really see the effect. And these shoes are allowing athletes you know, to, to run better, to break records. And it's been all over the, all over the media, this one. Yeah, and there are cases where I think in the full-body swimsuits, they actually got rid of them because it was perceived as giving people too much of an advantage. So they, so they changed the rule. So it's the, it's the role of the, the governing body of the sport to, to monitor the sport and to decide how they want to change or update the rules. Some governing bodies will not be particularly concerned about these things and they'll allow technology to come in. Others will be more conservative and they'll restrict technology. And it really depends on the, the different sports. And it's a fine balance between embracing technology and not letting the technology um, take over. And most governing bodies w- will accept that the technology in- helps to improve performance. It helps to increase the spectacle. It allows people to you know, remain enthusiastic ab- about the sport. So it's just maintaining that fine balance that we continue to see in performances improving, but it always has to be about the athlete and not the technology. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit more about that? How do you strike that balance between embracing technologies that enhance performance, but still keeping kind of the integrity of sport, you know, or fairness in competition? What kind of rules do you have to consider? 
what you really have to do is background research, so scientific research over a, over a long period of time. So you're continuously monitoring the sport, you're monitoring the factors which influence performance, and you're undertaking all the necessary science so you have that strong understanding. And as technology develops and improves, you can make informed decisions about whether to allow that technology to come in or whether or not to come in. So a governing body should really be understanding what the latest developments are within their sport and also outside of their sport with technology and engineering in general. And then they can say, okay, this technology is coming through. We should make a proactive decision about how we are going to deal with this rather than sort of being taken by surprise of a technology coming out and saying, okay, now we have to think about what we're going to do. Right. Do the governing bodies of the different sports have sort of different takes on how much change or, or progress they're willing to allow? Yeah, it very much varies be- between sports. So so some sports will allow you know lots of technology and they're, they're very sort of open to technology where others will be will be more more conservative and they'll say right we want to remain with the traditional materials that we've that we've already used and it it depends on the governing body and it also will depend on who is managing and overseeing the governing body at, at that time as well and trends can change over time yeah do they ever like take away people's medals based on we don't think you should have been using those shoes or whatever i think that's the thing that they would want to avoid I think mm-hmm. so. The ideal is that they they really monitor and they avoid that. I mean, there are examples where they said, okay, for in cycling, for example, saying right when you're using this bike, this is the medal, and when you're using this bike, you know, this is the the record. But really, that situation should should be avoided I- ideally with proactive kind of thinking ahead. From the Spark Archives, 2014. Glenn Pauly, Professor of Information Technology at Conestoga College. It's really, really difficult to assess how somebody's doing in sweeping just by watching them. Hmm. It's actually very difficult to tell, even for an athlete, how much impact they're actually having on the stone. How much pressure are they putting on the ice? Or simply, how many strokes per second are they doing? They really don't have any idea. And as a coach watching my athletes, it's very difficult even to tell observing how well they're doing. So here we have the smart broom that my students at Conestoga College put together. And uh, this broom uh, is a prototype, but it measures um, both pressure and stroke rate. Imagine, if you will, we're on a sheet of curling ice and you have this broom in your hand and you're ready to sweep a stone down to the other end for a draw shot. So after the stone is released, then you start sweeping. So I'm sweeping away, sweeping the stone all the way down the sheet. And then we finally get to the other end. And now the data from the broom has been transmitted wirelessly over Bluetooth. And now I have an instantaneous graph of your performance. So it has a combination of a couple of different accelerometers to measure the speed of the broom head in order to count things like stroke rate. And then it has load sensors underneath the brush head to capture how much pressure is being applied to the ice. Now we have a real tool to help with something that is quite arguably the most under-respected and under-coached aspect of the game. Hmm. Um, In curling, there's a lot more effort that goes into throwing technique instead of going into brushing technique. And with brushing technique, that's the difference really between winning and losing. 
You are listening to Spark. This is Spark from CBC. I'm Nora Young. Right now, my guest is mechanical engineer Thomas Allen. We're talking about how technological advances in the field of engineering have had an impact on the design of sports equipment. Recently, Thomas was one of the authors of a report from the Institution of Mechanical Engineers in the UK called Sustainable, Inclusive, Innovative, the Role of Engineering in Sport. So the key things with this report is about thinking beyond elite sport and thinking about recreational sport. So it's thinking about things like inclusivity of equipment. Are we designing equipment which fits and and serves as, as many people as possible? And also sustainability of the sports technology industry as a whole as well. So all the equipment and things which we're using, the clothing, the shoes, much of this ends up in landfill. So what can Mm. we do about this to ensure that we have a more circular economy? How can we redesign the products and and think about that in a way? And also it's talking about the technology. So so really what it's calling for is more facilities for testing and, and understanding sports equipment, a more collaborative approach across the whole of the sector and outside the sector as well, to think about how we can tackle some of these global challenges. So what kinds of things do you think we could do to make sports equipment design more more sustainable? Well, I think we need to be thinking about the, the materials which we're using, the complexity um, of the equipment as well. So if we use lots of complicated materials which are all glued or bonded together, in a way which means they're hard to to separate and then recycle, this can create challenges. So if we start to think about simplifying the materials, maybe using fewer materials, less mixing of materials. So if we have fabrics and we mix different fibres within those fabrics, it's harder to recycle those than if we have just one type of fibre. And then also thinking about collaborating with the people that are responsible for the waste. So how can we get the, the waste product back to the company so it can then it can then be reused there's, there's lots of challenges associated with that logistical challenges and also engineering challenges as well typically when you recycle material you'll get a reduction in the properties so the properties will become inferior so we need to be thinking about these challenges but some companies are now moving towards more of a rental scheme rather than a buying scheme so for example you may rent or subscribe to a t-shirt or some shoes and after a certain period of time, you send them back, they'll send you a new pair and they'll reuse those that you sent them. So that actually overcomes some of the challenges of, of sorting the different materials and getting them back because that's part of the design of the whole process. I love that idea of subscribing to shoes. <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting new way of doing things. And also things you know, like bikes. Do we if you think about the, the cycling rental schemes that we have in cities where you hire the bike for the hour? You know, is that more sustainable than having your own bike? Yeah. So we talked a bit about the performance enhancement. In what ways can engineering help with uh, injury risk reduction? So most people would probably think of the equipment itself, so the, the protective equipment which you might wear. But if we're thinking about a mountain bike centre or, or a ski resort, it's also the design of the slopes and the, the layout of the slopes, the, the design of, of the jumps and you know anything like this around around the resort to mitigate areas where people might crash together where trails come together or jumps which could be dangerous and also maybe more standardization of jumps so if you have some you know some youths turn up to a jump and they think they can do it and actually it's much more risky or or larger than than they realize so that that training signposting people 
maybe saying, right, you are certified to use this jump, but you're not certified to use this one. So really about understanding all the, all the risk factors and then applying engineering to, to design everything in an appropriate way and collaborating with the different people that are, that are involved. Since the death of hockey player Adam Johnson this past November, uh, interest in cut-resistant neck guards have really surged. Are you aware of any other kind of emerging technologies that might help ensure the safety of pro or amateur hockey players? I think there's a whole host of different technologies which which are emerging. One of the the big issues with um, head impacts is about concussion. And traditionally, we would use a a foam, like an expanded um, polystyrene foam within the helmet, which is good for for a crushing impact, like a severe head injury, but not necessarily for a rotational impact. So structuring the foam or using other types of materials can improve that resistance to, to rotation. What about other high contact sports? Like I understand you've collaborated with the Great Britain Boxing and the Swiss Council for Accident Prevention. Yeah, so different sports. I've worked with boxing. We're looking at um, injuries in, in the wrist and how we can look at the, the wrapping technique on, that you apply to the wrist to prevent the sort of hyperextension of, of the wrist to an impact. And also as well with wrist injuries in, in snowboarding and snowboarding and wrist protectors. So amongst snowboarders, wrist injuries is, is a big problem, particularly youths, children and beginners, because when you go snowboarding, you're strapped onto the board. So if you fall over, you instinctively put your arms out to cushion your fall, which then results in a, in a broken wrist. So wrist protectors are available, but not many people wear them. So I worked on a big project. So there are now a standard for snowboarding wrist protectors and there's certified products that are available. As I was saying before about this kind of multifaceted approach, now that we have a standard and we have wrist protectors that are available, the next stage in the process is about raising awareness that you should wear certified products. You wouldn't wear a helmet, which wasn't certified in the same way that you shouldn't wear a wrist protector, which which isn't certified. And then also working with um, ski schools and other organizations to ensure that these products are, are available. Mm-hmm. I did that exact thing while skating, putting my hand out to stop my fall and broke my wrist. I wish I had been wearing a certified wrist guard. So there's this elite level of athletes, but how can technology kind of enable or widen participation in sports kind of at all levels? So I think that just the general improvement of equipment can help to, to widen participation. So if we're thinking about cycling, for example, it's relatively common if you have a bike for it to be badly maintained, for it not to work particularly well. You know, if you have a jacket and it leaks when you go out in the rain, you're probably less likely to go out. So I think all of these factors where we're just generally increasing the performance and the suitability of the equipment can, you know, enhance the, the enjoyment when you're doing that sport and encourage you to, to go out more. But there's other issues as well around equipment not typically being designed for a broad population of people. So equipment is often designed for your typical male, and then there'll be certain groups which which are overlooked. So thinking about the data which we collect, the scientific studies we do, to ensure that we're serving a, a wide population of people, to ensure that females you know, and other groups are all considered as well, children. We're not just taking an adult size and just scaling it down and saying, okay, that's fine for, for a child. We need to be actually be considering these things properly. But what about the cost of some of these things? I mean, a good quality road bike can be 
eight or ten thousand dollars, and it's, it's sure it's going to improve your performance and probably your enjoyment, but that's a lot of money. Yeah, no, that, that is that is true as well. And I think that as an engineer, it's not my job to say, well, I'm going to work with the the fanciest companies and just work on you know the fanciest products. I'm more interested in working with the sort of widening participation, saying, right, what can we do to take this technology and apply it in, in an affordable, affordable way? How can we make this accessible to everybody? And also publishing our work looking at things, being very transparent and what does give a performance enhancement and, and what doesn't. So maybe being kind of honest about what's really required. You can still go out and have a, and have a really good time on a bike which doesn't cost a fortune. Mm-hmm. And as engineering improves, then all of the bikes and the standards should, should become higher. So what are the biggest challenges that engineers face in bringing new sporting goods or facilities actually to market? I think that at the moment, sustainability is a big challenge. And I think that addressing these broad populations is a, is a big challenge as well. And also just the cost and, and the quality control. There's lots of factors at the moment which are influencing pricing around the world. So I think it's quite hard for a, certainly for a relatively small company to come up with something innovative and to be able to do it at quality is, is tough. Mm-hmm. So you're an academic, but when it comes to commercial sports companies, be careful my phrases. How much of this is is sort of marketing rather than actually performance or safety? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a very good question, and that's part of my my role is to is to be thinking about you know what is the marketing and what is actually the engineering and trying to separate the two. So I think that the independent research is is really important, and that in some ways is the role that the universities play. As as a university, we don't really design the equipment. We would be more about testing the equipment and understanding the performance. So we could take a really expensive bike and then maybe a medium price bike and a lower end and actually look at them and compare them or look at different running shoes. And we try to move away from things like price and say, okay, so what is the actual design? What are the features? What are the materials in this product? And actually, if they're all made from the same materials with the same design, just because this one's more expensive, it doesn't mean it performs better. Yeah. And, and just finally, what's one advancement in sports tech that's really stood out to you recently or, or surprised or excited you? I think e-bikes is a, is a really nice one. It's a really nice example. Again, about broadening kind of that participation makes it much easier for people to, to engage in cycling, to go out cycling. That could be commuting to work or going, going mountain biking. It's opened up new areas for mountain biking. And it also allows people of different abilities to ride together. So one person may be on an e-bike and the other one might not to access more remote areas. So I think e-bikes is is really exciting and that's going to continue. I think the big thing at the moment is they're relatively expensive, fairly kind of heavy, but all of that is going to come down in price. They're going to become more streamlined and the difference between an e-bike and a normal bike will, I guess, become narrower. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for your insights on this, Tom. Thank you. Thomas Allen is a senior lecturer in sports engineering at Manchester Metropolitan University. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Baruzzi, Samarie Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Chris Chavez, Deborah King, and Thomas Allen. And from the Spark archives, Glenn Pauly. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.